Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two here to help you help your children fully bloom. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. And just another quick moment to thank our patrons who help us create resources for a diverse audience. If you are moved by our mission and find our work valuable, please consider becoming an official patron. You'll help the Full Bloom podcast keep going strong. So welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 49. We are excited to be joined this week by Dr. Jeffrey Hunger, a social psychologist and researcher who studies weight stigma and health. Dr. Hunger is an assistant professor of social psychology at Miami University of Ohio, and his research uses insights from social psychology to understand and improve the health of stigmatized groups like higher body weight individuals and racial and sexual minorities. We're thrilled to talk to him today about his research and the consequences of weight stigma. Welcome, Jeff, to the Full Bloom Project. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to get into it all with you, but before we get into your research and the research, can you just tell us a bit about your background and the work that you do? Yeah, of course. So my training and background is in social psychology. So social psychology is the area of psychology that studies how our social worlds impact our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. Uh, Obviously, and I'm completely unbiased here, uh, social psychologists tackle some of the most interesting questions. So in my lab specifically, we are really interested in the mental and physical health effects of being in a stigmatized group. For the better part of the last decade or so, whew, it's a long time to say that out loud, uh, I've focused a, a lot of the work uh, that I've been doing on weight stigma in particular. And we've talked a lot about weight stigma on the podcast Um I feel like we can't talk about it enough and call it out enough. I mean, so it might be helpful just as we get back into it, if you could give a brief overview of why it's important to study. Yeah, so I think weight stigma is such an important topic to talk about, to study, to just be at the forefront of our consciousness. And I'm glad that this has been a topic that uh, y'all have talked about before, simply because it has such a profound impact on a person's well-being. You know, there are a whole host of mental health consequences of being a target of weight stigma from things like stress, anxiety and depression to suicidal ideations or suicidal thoughts to uh, disordered eating, which I think is something that might be particularly interesting to the folks that are listening here. And this is sort of a a bigger area that my lab is starting to get into uh, and we'll be focusing on over the next couple of years. Um, But beyond that, there's also physical health outcomes. We're talking things like higher blood pressure, elevated levels of physiological stress and inflammation, and 
there's even work to show that weight stigma predicts mortality, which is incredible. We've talked about weight stigma a lot, but I feel like there's always people tuning in for the first time um, or just it's easy to say, but not fully easy to understand how pervasive it is. So can you just share what your definition of weight stigma is? Yeah, there's, there's, you know, sort of different working definitions of weight stigma, but very broadly, we can think about it as sort of the negative stereotypes and prejudice and sort of social devaluation that higher body weight individuals face in our society. And I say in our society, because for the most part, stigma is something that is situational, it's contextual, it's situated here in our society, uh, that tends to be one that is prioritizing thinner bodies over fatter bodies. And so it's one that is fat phobic and it translates into things like being discriminated against, being a target of stereotypes and being a target of prejudice because of your weight. And what yeah. are some of the cultural misconceptions that many people have about weight stigma? Yeah. So I think by far the biggest misconception is that stigmatizing weight is quote unquote for their own good mm. and will result in weight loss, which just a ton of data and a ton of research has shown to not be true. Weight stigma is not going to translate into positive changes in health behaviors, positive changes in mental health, and most certainly is not going to translate into positive changes in weight, which is what the folks that want to adopt weight stigma as a public health promotion tool think. So this is a, you know, a whole separate conversation where we can talk about weight being a pretty terrible indicator of health. But for the folks that really buy into weight as an indicator of health, they think that maybe we can stigmatize people into being healthier. And that's just not the case. And I think part of it is like that they are using what we saw with smoking. So this parallel is drawn a lot. Uh, we've even drawn it in our own work. But this parallel has been drawn where stigmatizing smokers seem to be an effective public health tool by telling smokers they can't smoke here or there or telling smokers they have to only smoke in this one tiny area and by sort of these public health campaigns that pitched smokers as smelly, as people that you didn't want to date, all these different things, they have argued that it's a, an effective tool. And so the folks that have seen that work for, for smoking are thinking that we can just like very easily translate that and you know just plop it into working for weight for a whole host of reasons that's not effective and like you know it's this giant misconception. It's such a dangerous misconception too. I mean, I know one of the things we do talk a lot about here and I know you're acutely aware of is just how counterintuitive a lot of this is and you know we try to be very gentle with our audience, because we we really want to be deliberate about not blaming or shaming, you know, parents that are doing their best. And we talk a lot even about, you know, weight-based bullying and how understandable it would be for a parent who, let's say, is not, you know, is kind of new to some of these ideas, how intuitive it might be to say, oh, I don't want my child to experience weight stigma. So um, I would like to help them change their body so that they could avoid that discrimination to avoid that pain or social ostracization or, or any of the number of kind of unfortunate things that occur. And of course, we talk about how that's so not the point. It's like the opposite of what we need to be doing as parents. But I love when we get to have 
this conversation and just try to increase the sort of general awareness about what this is, how pervasive it is, and then also what research really tells us are the best practices to support our kids. Absolutely. So uh, that reminds me, have uh, either of you uh, read Roxane Gay's Hunger? Yes. I assume both of you have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that book, which is incredibly powerful, highly recommend folks to read it. I actually really felt a strong connection to the audiobook because Roxanne narrates it herself. Mm. Uh, And so in that book, she talks about her desire to seek out bariatric surgery for her weight loss and ultimately doesn't, at least at the consequence, or this is spoiler alerts of like the book, at the end of the book doesn't, but I don't know if you two are aware that she ended up actually seeking out weight loss surgery and has this incredibly powerful essay on Medium about why she engaged in that and why she made that decision. And one of the things that she touched on is exactly what you kind of touched on with respect to what the parents are feeling. And she was saying that she realized that she could more readily change her body than she could change how society feels about her body. And it's so powerful because it's basically the same idea of these parents. You know, we want to look out for and make sure that our kids have the best possible life. And so those parents are motivated not for some reason that's related to their, you know, their kids being skinny, but it's related to them realizing that if they're not, they are going to face a lot of challenges in our fat phobic society. And it's just so poignant And so heartbreaking that that oftentimes is the motivation for folks to do things that they think are going to be for their student or their kids' best interests, but ultimately, you know, are going to lead to these more detrimental things down, down the, down the way. Right. Those are those ironic effects. Exactly. Like they, I mean, there's plenty of ironic effects that are in this area. Like, you know, the, the, the biggest is that folks think that it's going to actually make people lose weight, which there's tons of research to suggest that weight stigma doesn't. I just want to stop there because I feel like we in our field we know that but most people don't and I just want to kind of stop and ask you to talk more about that to our listeners um, because those ironic effects, they're not out there. Like they, People don't make those connections. They don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so like at the broader level, if we're talking about weight gain, for example, there's plenty of research to suggest some from my lab uh, and work that I've done with Janet Tomiyama at UCLA, some work that's coming from uh, Gina Sutton's research at Florida State to suggest that, you know, experiences with discrimination across the lifespan, whether it be adolescents like our work has shown or older groups that experiences with weight stigma actually predict weight gain over time, which itself seems incredibly counterintuitive, especially if you endorse this idea that weight stigma itself should be, you know, the motivator, like it was for smoking, to get people to change. But it makes a little bit more sense once you start to unpack what are the consequences of weight stigma. When we talk about weight stigma, we talk about it changing our eating behavior, Weight stigma, our research has found, makes people more likely to snack. Uh, Dr. Tomiyama's research has found that it leads people to actually have a stronger physiological stress response uh, in terms of 
producing cortisol. And cortisol itself is associated with weight gain over time. There's research from Lenny Vartanian's lab that suggests that weight stigma makes people less likely to engage in physical activity. They're less likely to go to the gym because, it's, not surprisingly, as it turns out, the gym is a fairly stigmatizing place for higher body weight individuals. And so when we start to unpack these, these sort of mechanisms or these things that would potentially relate from weight stigma to weight gain, it makes perfect sense. It becomes less ironic and that clearly weight stigma is having the complete opposite effect of what those that would like to use it as a public health promotion tool expected. Mm. It's also why, and, and I do believe we've talked about it here before, it's like sometimes as a last resort, um, whether it's with a client or if I'm having a kind of conversation about this sort of trying to prove the point or <laughs> trying to sell this idea that I will appeal to somebody's almost appeal to their own weight stigma to say something like research shows that weight stigma contributes to weight gain. Here you are saying you don't want to gain weight or you don't want your child to gain weight, but these efforts are going to kind of bring about the thing you don't want. But I think this, I say last resort because I think when we're working from a weight neutral perspective and we're both very haze aligned and educate our listeners about health at every size and body size diversity and and we're trying to you know lean into this sort of fat acceptance movement as well so i wonder like how can we talk about these findings right and the consequences of weight stigma without inadvertently further reinforcing the stigma do you know what i mean yeah absolutely i think that but i do think that any conversation that works to sort of dispel the myth that weight stigma can somehow be health promoting and one that points out all the ways that diet culture and weight stigma kind of go hand in hand is going to be a productive one. I think that within a Hayes context, it's actually kind of helpful to directly address what we know about weight stigma. Let's call it. Let's name it. Let's show it. You know, by naming it and discussing it openly, we can talk about it as a real barrier to health promotion that it is. Oftentimes, it's talked about a little bit tangentially when we should be really thinking about it as the kind of core barrier to health promotion. It stops a lot of people from engaging in things that we think are really good for long-term health. You know, it's a real barrier to going to the doctor. It's a real barrier to engaging in sustainable physical activity that you love, not things that you think you should do to struggle through. It's a barrier to finding a healthy relationship with food. It's it's there at every step of the way that would get us to being, you know, positively promoting health. And so I think if we talk about it, we can like kind of bring the boogeyman out of the closet a little bit because oftentimes folks aren't able to name it or aren't able to point to it as something that's such a barrier. And I think part of that is because, especially when we talk about weight stigma, it becomes internalized so often. People will internalize it and direct it at the self, and so they don't see it as an external barrier. When it should be talked about as this, you know, insidious external barrier that is standing in between your way of uh, actually engaging in health-promoting behaviors. Yeah, I found that it's really interesting. What I've noticed in my clinical practice is that there's almost a desire to internalize it in some of my clients because the externalizing of it is such a dilemma 
And it's so hard to change from an individual point of view. It's so hard to change the huge weight stigma, fat phobic society that we have. So it's easier, I've noticed, to turn it inside on themselves and say, it's just my problem. I'll be able to solve it if it's just my problem, even though the trying to solve it is, is causing a problem. Um, but I've just noticed that. I don't know if you have any comment on that, if you know what I'm talking about, but it just seems to be something that keeps coming up for me. You know, that's interesting. Like, I don't have any, no data is coming to mind when I hear that comment, but okay. I think I can, I can completely see that as being something that would be a natural sort of process that would unfold. Because if we think about things that you can control, and you, you cannot control how biased people are, but you can control things about yourself. Or there's this perception also in our society that you can control your weight, right? It's like oh, it yeah. just kind of pulls it right in, pulls someone right into it, and, um, and then they're, they're stuck with that, with that. They're stuck with that problem of trying to control the weight. I think that suggestion that Jeff you're making about control and you know does it kind of makes me think about the even the Roxane Gay article that you were referencing that you know it's terrifying to really confront the reality that a lot of this isn't in our control. I mean we do try to empower parents and and healthcare providers to you know, tap into their own activism or interactivists and sort of plant seeds for the next generation to, you know, push back and, and you know, find their interactivists about this issue. But, you know, yeah, like there is, there's something kind of comforting about the idea that you could control it, either take the stigma on yourself or just like what you were saying, Leslie, the I'll just shrink my body to, you know, line up with more societal norms. And I want to validate that feeling that can come up for anyone where it's like, okay, whoa, if I'm not the problem, if it's this big, huge problem, I can imagine feeling sort of powerless or hopeless or that's a scary place to be. And I guess that's why, you know, we want to talk to people like you who are doing the dirty work of like getting the research, like getting the moving the research forward, because that is like a way to kind of impact and adjust the bigger problem um, that you're really studying this problem. And I'm curious what it's like for you to be a researcher in this field and just presenting at conferences and just like, what is that like to be in some respects taking on this huge social problem that we have? So I will tell you, it has been a wild ride <laughs> over the past, because, you know, so I started graduate school in 2009 when I was doing my master's degree at Cal State Fullerton. And so I've seen a lot of transition over the past decade. So it's been a little bit wild to like give these talks or give these presentations. And it's been heartening to actually see people transition from, I mean, in 2011, when we were first starting to do this work, we had people that were still arguing vociferously about weight stigma being an effective health promotion tool. Mm -hmm. So we were, we were coming up against folks that were like, 
not only fully understanding that this could have health consequences, but we're also just basically advocating for the fact that it could be health promoting. So for it to be 2020 and for me to have a conversation with folks like you two that are fully aware of the fact that this is like a health risk, it just <laughs> brings me so much joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to get to this point, having spent the past decade or so, and also, like, I'm, I, I should say, and I, I want to make sure that I pay the appropriate respect, is, like, there are plenty of fat activists that come before me and folks that were in this field that were doing the on-the-ground activism work before me as a researcher that have laid the foundation for what I'm doing. Like, this is not new. This work has been happening since the 50s and 60s. But I have seen over the past 10 years or so folks that have transitioned from treating it as something that's probably a health promotion tool to actually fully understanding the negative consequences of this. It's been very helpful to see that as a researcher. It's been very sort of invigorating, too, as a researcher, you know, making the transition from graduate school to being a professor, knowing that I'm landing here and being able to sit here and see the launching point from where I am now to be all about the ways in which we can dismantle weight stigma and not have to literally just defend it as a inherent danger. Yeah, I mean, it makes me excited. And it reminds me of this question that we were presenting to some faculty at a private school recently. And someone asked, you know, if this is true, then why, why is the opposite happening in doctor's offices? I sat with her and I was just like, you know, I, we just don't have enough funding for research like this. We just don't have enough of this. But I guess I want to ask you, is, is that true? You know, is it like, why is this not further along in our kind of psychological ethos of our social psychology? I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And I mean, it wasn't until Rebecca... Pool's 2009 review paper, which I'm, I'm, I don't know if Rebecca has been on this yeah, uh, podcast. Yeah, she has, yeah. Like, you know, her 2009 review paper really laid out the landscape for what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. And like, personally speaking, was like literally what uh, got me into this field. And I have all sorts of uh, respect for Rebecca because she literally got me into this field. But that was only, that was only, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. And laying out a field that had so many holes in it. So many areas in which we knew that there would be an impact of weight stigma on health, but we just didn't have the research to tell us about this. And it's partially funding. Like I will say, over the past 10 years, there have been funding agencies or people that are directing programs that have told me that they think weight stigma should be an effective motivator for health behavior change. So why would I study anything but that? That hurts me given like what I know with the, you know, the extant literature. But like there, this is still like, I mean, when our funding, you know, our funding managers, our, our program officers yeah. at National Institutes of Health and the staff at different places, they're humans. You know, yeah. these are people. These are people that are just as susceptible to the biases in our fat phobic country as anyone else is. And so, of course, they would probably think if they're not weight stigma uh, scholars, that it should be like, you know, the easiest way to motivate people. And but that translates into research dollars. And that I do think that one of the things that we are missing and one of the things that we need is more funding, because the more we get funding in this area of research, the better we can understand how weight stigma impacts health 
And what I think is also very important is we can understand how this relationship between weight and health that has been propagated for so many years in, me in, in medicine might just be a function of weight stigma. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think that it's helpful for us to remember as an answer to that question, which comes up all the time. Because we let the last thing Leslie and I want is to come off as like crazies, like you know, conspiracy theorists, like especially when there is so much science. And I think it is why we're so committed to making sure that we are very research focused on this podcast. But to be able to say to people, it's a newer science. It's a newer um, facet of science. There's a lot of old ideas that are changing. And to be able to say that the last 10 years, slowly more changes come. But in order for it to become more mainstream knowledge um, or more of the experience you find in your pediatrician's office, it's we need money for research, time, and I, I'm thinking, too, activism. Like, Yeah, like, and, and translations. Like, because we're such a new and, like, you know, youthful science, we don't have time to figure out ways to translate what we're doing, like you say, to the pediatrician's office. Yeah. Like, I would love for this to be able to be something that was immediately in a pediatrician's office, but for the most part, you know, we are academics. We are publishing... We hope it gets out there. We thankfully have folks like you two that will bring us on and we can have conversations. But like that's still a big issue. It's like how do we get this to be translating from my research lab in, uh, you know, a wintry, snowy Ohio to pediatricians like on the ground mm -hmm. and thinking about the ways to make that transition more effective and more efficient is like so high on my priority. Well, let's talk about it, you know, because you're talking to parents right now. They're listening to you speak. From your perspective, what can they do to help kids who may be more vulnerable to experiencing weight stigma and bias? That is the million-dollar question right there. <laughs> um, but I think so, honestly, I yeah. think modeling body acceptance and body appreciation among parents is critical. It's also probably one of the hardest things to accomplish when we live in such a fat phobic culture that we've talked about, you know, here today. Uh, so I think find similar others. Find an anti-diet dietitian. Hashtag Christy Harrison. You know, <laughs> all of her wonderful work that she's had. All of Virginia Soleil's work, Virginia, uh, her fantastic work. You know, find a health at every size aligned therapist. Find your people. That's going to be the first step because we can't do this alone. We absolutely can't tackle fat phobia by ourselves because it's such a cultural problem. It's such a problem that is, it's situated in our social environments. We need to find people that we can do that with. And so leverage your resources, you know, because the, the, the little ones are listening. They are soaking up every damn comment about food, every off comment about your weight changing, every comment about your latest diet or Noom, ugh. And, you know, they, they, see, they see your relationship with food, they see your relationship with your body, and they see it as a model. And that's the issue. You are their model. And so as parents, I really, really just want to say, make sure that the way that you engage with your body and your food and all of these related things is how you would like your children to do so. 
make sure that the, the way that you're doing it is exactly the way that you would like your daughters and your sons to do so. That's what I can offer to, to parents. Well, and, and you sort of beat us to it. That's kind of the million-dollar question that we always ask. But before we let you go, I, you know, we, we do talk a lot about ways to increase protective factors, which is what, what you're encouraging, right? Like working on our own body acceptance and modeling. But we also talk about um, trying to be mindful of and mitigate risk factors. And I wonder if you could just let parents know, like, what identities – may be more at risk of experiencing weight bias because, you know, it's it's helpful to sometimes know, are there some folks listening that their kids may be at higher risk or that they're at higher risk than others? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is, a, this is, this is a, an important but very nuanced question. Women and girls are, of course, more stigmatized for their weight in our current society than men and boys are. And so, of course, parents of women and girls that needs to be uh, of high priority. But I want to make sure that we don't talk about these things in ways that make it so that weight stigma is only a girl problem. Mm -hmm. It is because it's especially this research, uh, you know, the latest research suggests that our young boys and our, our men are just as impacted by weight stigma. And so I want to, by focusing on specific groups that might be at the highest risk, we think that our other groups of people aren't there and don't need the same sort of protection and the same sort of resources that we're giving our girls and women. You know, weight stigma cuts across racial and ethnic groups. It cuts across sexual identities and sexual orientations. It cuts across socioeconomic strata. And this is one of the things that, like, you know, cutting back to what we were talking about earlier, why I think weight stigma is so important is because it can affect so many people. I want to, you know, in, in two ways, acknowledge the fact that there are certain groups that are at higher risks. Women and girls, uh, sexual minorities, for the most part, seem to be at the highest risk of encountering weight stigma. But that doesn't mean that our men and boys and that our straight people and that across racial groups, these folks aren't experiencing and having the consequences of weight stigma. And one, one final topic is that when we talk about weight stigma, we really have to be sure that we are centering higher body weight individuals. Although people may experience or may perceive weight stigma across the weight spectrum, as we've talked about for the past, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 minutes, we live in a fat phobic society that glorifies thinness and that systematically marginalizes fat individuals. And so we need to make sure that we are centering the people that are the most marginalized and the people that are most affected by weight stigma in our conversations. Yes, it's going to have a, uh, an impact on folks across the weight spectrum, but we need to make sure that we are responding to, integrating, and lifting up voices of people that are in you know, fat bodies because they are the folks that, for the most part, deal with this the most. Yeah, right. Like on the institutional level, we're going to be speaking to Virgie Tovar soon and that breakdown that she has about the sort of different levels of weight stigma. And I think what you are really, you know, it's a call to action to really think about the people and the children included that are facing the, sort of that more institutional level of weight stigma. And as further nuance to, to also appreciate that, 
you know, people even in smaller bodies can have internalized weight stigma, whether that's what they're reflecting their attitudes towards others or even themselves. But I, I do appreciate that point you're making. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we can appreciate how much this incredibly fat phobic, this incredibly thin centric culture that we all live in and this, you know, this world that we're swimming around in can impact us, but making sure that we center the appropriate people in our conversations about the consequences of weight stigma is so critical because we don't want to be in a situation where we are sitting on this podcast and having a conversation about weight stigma and not centering the people that are literally getting the shit end of the stick on it. Yeah. And, uh, excuse me first. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm actually pretty positive that I only swore once. Uh, I think it's the entire thing. <laughs> I think so. I think so. But yes, I think that's a wonderful point to end on. And we just so appreciate the work that you're doing, being on the ground, getting the research out and available for us to be able to disseminate to parents. So thank you so much. And thank you for your time. Absolutely. I'm equally as grateful that you two are taking time to actually engage with the research and get it out to other folks. Like this is something that I'm so passionate about because we as scientists don't always have the easiest way to get our findings out to people. And a lot of what we do is incredibly challenging and dense and is not good for folks that aren't researchers and not scientists. And so I love your podcast for this reason that we can get research out to the people that need to hear it. And so I want to say just thank you for having me on. You are welcome. And if you ever have something you think parents should hear, let us know. (laughs) Yes. Let us know. (laughs) You know where to find us. So enlightening. Even though we've talked about weight stigma here before, I'm so glad that we had Jeff here to help us just get back to the conversation and remind us all how important it is for us to really not stop sitting with this and really contemplating how enormous an issue weight stigma is and it just makes me feel like we can't talk about it enough yeah I think I was I was talking with my husband recently about okay we're gonna do this podcast recording with Dr. Hunger and he was like oh weight stigma didn't you guys already do a weight stigma one and I was like yeah, but that's our first fundamental. Like, mm. it's so foundational, and it's really nice to. It was nice for me to talk to um, researchers about it, and really, I think something about this conversation really helped me appreciate how challenging it is for researchers to kind of do their job and then get the information out there, and how there's like that little sweet spot that we're trying to fill and we just want everyone that wants to fill it to fill it to really try to bridge you know what's coming up in the research to the general public yeah totally and I think he validated I don't remember if I said it in the conversation but he really validated the very thing that drives us because while we both value research we are not researchers and I thought his very honest answer about like you're busy researching, you are kind of stuck in this sort of academic game and you are sort of working on funding and grants and they don't necessarily have the capacity to do this sort of dissemination in the more more colloquial way. 
they're, of course, getting published, and that allows us to get access to the research. But I'm just thinking about how this is such a call to action for anyone listening to keep putting it out there. Like, I heard this. It's based in research and help in any way, whether it's in your own community, at your own school, doctor's office, family, just sort of share the information as you learn it because it's got to be a kind of grassroots effort to get this very, very logical information that somehow is not yet making it into the mainstream, moving it along. And I, I did feel empowered by by what we're doing and kind of what he was saying. And I feel like others can feel that way too. Like I want our listeners and parents that come to our presentations or faculty we talk to, to not feel frustrated or hopeless that, oh, what an uphill battle, but rather say, oh, wow, now what can I do? What five people can I tell? (laughs) You know, almost like the ripple effect. Absolutely. I mean, that's how movements happen. And I think what's becoming just so crystal clear for me as we do more and more podcasts together and do this work is that this is really an oppressed population that we're that we're all kind of experiencing the side effects of or the direct effects of and how when there's an oppressed population like it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort to fight, you know, for justice and equality. And we've seen movements happen in the past. And I guess I just realized that we're really part of a movement right now. And it's great to be part of it. And it's really great to have listeners and patrons just to feel like we're all in it together. Just to our listeners, like we want to hear from you. We want to know what you want to know, what, you know, what researchers or what questions you have, because We want to help you get them answered by people who are spending their life researching this stuff. Yeah. And I think what we're trying to do in planning for next season, too, and it's part of why we want to hear from you listeners, we really want to try to answer really specific questions because we, of course, think it's important to understand these fundamentals and these sort of social phenomenons that underpin our just general operating in the world. But we also know that it's important to talk about how this stuff specifically affects unique individuals. And so questions that maybe feel like, oh, well, this is too personal, like, or this is just about my kid. You know, we want to hear those questions, too, because we want to be able to take sort of our expertise as clinicians and marry that with an opposite researcher and be able to sort of give you real world applications to all of this. That's really our goal for next season. And so please do write in and help us understand what it is that's that you're struggling with or what it is that you are aspiring to. And, and we, we really want to make next season target the questions as specifically as possible. Yeah, that's right. So that's our show today. Yes, we would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please do send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're learning, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And thank you especially to Penny94040 for leaving us a review recently. That meant a lot to us. Yeah. And thank you guys all so much for listening. 
And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Thank you.